Welcome to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is the second recap episode for Chapter 3. We're going to be covering pages 152 to 169 in the Orb 2012 edition. And uh, yeah, we're cutting it really close to Christmas, just a few days away. So I don't know, maybe we're keeping you company on a, on a road trip to, to visit some family or something like that. And if so, we're uh, we're glad to do that for you. We're glad to be there with you on that journey. I do want to say uh, that because it is Christmas time, that means that we have also just released our two Christmas episodes on Patreon. Uh, This year, we continued our tradition of doing a Connie Willis uh, SF Christmas story, and then we also did a Christmas-themed ghost story by Jen Ashworth, which was a really disturbing story, in fact. Yeah, we we love Connie Willis, uh, and it's it's almost a shame we can't just do more of her stuff. I'm sure, Glenn. I mean, especially with your background in, in medieval history, uh, that us going through like the Oxford time travel books would be a huge bash someday. I mean, that might be ten years from now or something. But I'm really glad we're able to cover her Christmas stories for the podcast, at least, just to I don't know demonstrate our love for her. And yeah, it's great to add another author to that rotation as well, or just to add more Christmas ghost stories, which is a great tradition by itself. So I hope you enjoy these these great Christmas episodes that we're bringing to you from, I don't know, the corners of Clay Temple Media. <laughs> well, this section uh, picks up with a little bit about Julius Smart, who we, who we talked about a little in our last episode, and uh, continues the story within the story format. I won't say too much more about it, because uh, if you're reading along, you'll be as lost as we are as we're going through it. And if you've <laughs> read the novel, you'll be able to enjoy this uh, story a second time. It's one of my favorite things that Wolf has written. Oh, yeah. This is all so, so awesome. And I think you and I are both struggling to resist the siren call of wrap-up episodes at this point, which is, uh, <laughs> uh, I think, a testament to just how crazy and also how crazy good this just entire novel is. So yeah, last episode, we had Olivia telling her story about this magical ceramic pillow and the young military officer all set in early modern China. And when we ended, it was time to spin the bottle to see who would tell the next story. And Wolf is never actually going to narrate that bottle spin. But after the section break, we get we're introducing us to the one new character at this birthday party, which is Julia Smart. Julia Smart is a pharmacist and he owns a a pharmacy in Cashinsville. So like we said last time that uh, he's got this uh, businessman affinity with uh, Jimmy McAfee and Stuart Blaine. Though his owning of this shop, his owning of this pharmacy, this is actually a fairly new development. He moved to town and he bought a shop called Bledsoe's from the pharmacist whose name was Bledsoe. And uh, that guy was retiring, though it seems that Julius here has, uh, has kept the name Bledsoe's, which is probably a smart business decision here. But much of this two-page section is actually about the store itself. It's Weir's memory of Bledsoe's before Julius Smart bought it. And he remembers it as crowded, and, and not just crowded with medicines, but with like crutches and bedpans and walking sticks. But this is something that Julius Smart changed. He changes all of this. He makes the store cleaner and brighter and less cluttered. And he also changes up the window displays as well. We also get from Weir here a physical description of Julius Smart. He's short. Uh, something is also wrong with one of his shoulders. It's uh, noticeably larger than the other one. He's also pale and fair, and he's got a long nose. But what really matters here is that Weir very casually tells us two pieces of information that I think are very important. And the first is that, um, hey, Julius Smart, 
he's going to marry Aunt Olivia here. He's the suitor of fire, presumably. And second, Weir's parents are going to end up staying in Europe for a long time. They just decide not to come home to their son. And so he ends up living with Olivia for several years, even after she marries Julia Smart, who we also learn here simply moves into Olivia's current house with her and Weir. So you know, we've already been speculating about father figures and uh, you know the suitors of Olivia. So we're going to have to really start thinking about Julia Smart as, I think, a type of father figure for Weir, given that he's going to be the adult male in Weir's household from the time he's, you know, eight or nine here for several more years, like going into his early adolescence. Yeah, I'm going to touch on that in just just a moment. I want to point out, I mean, I think uh, we get a little more information about this later, but right now, at least, though, Glenn, feel free to correct me here, because I think in a later episode, you, you, you will have found something that I couldn't quite find in the text. But right now, we don't know exactly when Olivia marries Julius. Uh, but the point remains that, yeah, Weir's parents don't come home for a while and that they're cruising around the Mediterranean in a rented yacht while he's basically been abandoned by them. And so Olivia becomes Weir's de facto guardian. So, yes, Glenn, as you were pointing out, Julius then probably becomes more of a father figure to Weir than his own father was to him. So that's something to really think about. There's a lot of throwaway lines in this introduction to Julius Smart. I mean, like, Glenn, you pointed out that Smart is a hunchback. Uh, And listen, I did a ton of research on, like, hunchbacks and literary symbolism and, like, alchemy and all that stuff. Came up kind of empty. I mean, apparently, um, you know, the antagonist in... Hunchback of Notre Dame is into uh, alchemy in a big way. Uh, There are some traditions of tarot where the hunchback is uh, featured on the lover's card instead of like the Adam and Eve and the snake. So there's that picture as well. Then also the like the wise person might also be hunchbacked on the tarot cards. That might have some connections to alchemy. Then, of course, there's the like ugly Jesus hypothesis where I'm not going (laughs) to ask you if Julius Smart is Jesus, but, you know, they're like, maybe Jesus had a hunchback. There's one saint who found, you know, an errant portion of Josephus's text that described Jesus as being like hunchbacked and pretty ugly. All of that's to say that that was all like blogs on the internet and I couldn't find any original <laughs> sources for it. So I, I'm not, I'm saying this as like, uh, don't believe any of that. I just, he, it just, you know, Wolf might just be describing a person, but the way that we're writes about this disfigurement is to get us to think about smart in relation to one who was handicapped. We're, or Wolf writes smart was not officially as it were a cripple. And this is a really strange flourish in the text that makes me wonder why Weir would want us to not officially think of Smart as a cripple, but maybe like unofficially we should think of him that way for reasons yet to be seen. And it's just, to me, this is a strange flourish. Part of the strangeness is that it's not, at least in this chapter, going to matter in any way, right? Like the the, the thing that is wrong with his shoulder is not going to show up as some kind of limitation in, in like an emergency situation or be the catalyst for something. It is a detail that does not matter at all to any of the events of this chapter. So why, why even have this? Why give this attribute to this character is a question that we have to be asking. Uh, and, you know, I just want to reserve the right, of course, officially here. I'll use the word officially here. 
Uh, I'm going to claim someone as Jesus in this story. I haven't figured out who yet, and it might be Julius, but uh, but I'm I'm going to prove to you that somebody is Jesus. I, I think uh, a big part of what I'm going to be talking about as we go through these uh, recaps in Smart Story is to kind of uncover why this um, business about Smart's disfigurement is is an important part of the text, but. That'll be ongoing and certainly part of our discussion episode. There, there are all of these other sorts of moments in this section of text that, Glenn, you already pointed out. They emphasize change or transformation and improvement. You know, This is important because the chapter is called The Alchemist. Weir actually writes that Julius was an improvement. Uh, Bledsoe's was improved somehow by hiding all of the medical devices that... Yes, they were super necessary for those who needed them, but by hiding that equipment, perhaps more people were attracted to come into the store. And then what I feel like we're really dealing with here that I think is a big theme of Julius' smart story is a kind of appeal to normality or the norm, the idea of mass appeal. And we're not sure if smart then like threw out all of the necessary stuff in the pharmacy to make room for more cigarettes or whatever. But we do know that Smart threw out a lot of stuff. And this is in context of talking about the Bakelite tip catheters. Um, and so like, we don't know if like Smart has gotten rid of the, the things that people really need in order to make a mass appeal. And that would make him a kind of negative type figure, a bad type of character. I don't know if that's implied in the text or not, but my sense is that Smart is not as bad as Weir actually thinks he is. And then Weir goes on to say that Smart improved his home out of existence. Again, another negative connotation around this use of the word improve, and that Smart was the first major change then in Weir's memory. And you know whether or not that's a good or bad thing, we don't know. And furthermore... Weir goes on to explicitly think of Smart as a symbolic figure. That could be the figure of the father. It could be a figure of a fool or the wise man or any of these tarot type things. And he uses this uh, same type of flourish that he used when talking about Smart's handicap to describe Smart as a symbolic figure. Like Smart becomes a symbolic figure for Weir, but we probably shouldn't think of him in in that way at this moment. And, oh yeah, uh, Weir went on a treasure hunt at some point with someone named Lois Arbuthnot. This whole chapter is madness, but, you know, (laughs) as I think I've said, of the three I've read, it's my favorite so far. I'm interested that you saw the the discarding of some of this stuff that was just in Bledsoe's, uh, the, you know, this like specialized uh, equipment uh, stuff for like real uh, rare, I guess, conditions uh, as being kind of negative. I, I got the impression that it was really a, a positive thing to do. And yeah, he does say, Weir does say that Julius Smart threw some of that away, but he also tells us that Bledsoe had a room in the pharmacy, in the shop that was a, had been a storeroom that he then converted to a sitting room. So I got the impression of what Bledsoe, who you know presumably is old, right? He's selling the business to Julius Smart here and presumably now retiring. I got the impression that you know, at least the last, I don't know, 10 years of running this business that he actually just had this comfortable sitting room in the shop and he just hung out in there. And if somebody came in and needed something, he'd go, he'd leave, you know, he'd go out into the store and, you know, do, do what they needed. But otherwise the shop was just cluttered with 
stuff that he had. So he wasn't always necessarily like managing stock, ordering stuff that he was just kind of, I don't know, doing crossword puzzles or, or, or something in this back sitting room, but that we've got Julia Smart here who is young and energetic, who converts that back to a type of storeroom. And he is now filling up the shop with inventory that he's going to have to manage, right? That he's going to be energetic, I guess, about running this business. That's that's how I saw the portrayal there, the contrast between these two people. I, I guess just the way the rest of this story plays out or the information we get around Julius Smart, I, I'm not saying he did something wrong. I, I'm really trying to more focus here and this is like the raw like i'll get more into this as we continue our recaps of chapter three just this this strange way that we're is narrating about smart and the way smart approaches norm or uses aberrant things or aberrations and ties them to different dark images and the way that we're will end up taking things that are are pretty tragic and heartbreaking and kind of reporting them in a normal or normative way and there's just this weird contrast that i really picked up on starting here between normative things and aberrant things and the way we're and smart are kind of contrasted in their reporting of those things. And so that's kind of what made me think that was the case. I mean, Smart wants to bring foot traffic into the business. He doesn't want catheters out. That's not going to draw a crowd. Cigarettes draw a crowd. And so, yeah, it's a different business model, I guess, at least. Okay, well, we'll perhaps revisit that in the in the wrap up because, hey, we're going to learn an awful lot about Julius Smart now because it is time for him to tell a story here at Jimmy McAfee's birthday party being held at Olivia's house when Weir is about nine years old here. So the story that he's going to tell is autobiographical, you know. He's claiming it is anyway, and I suppose right that we uh, we have to be skeptical about that in a wolf book. But in any case, he's telling the story in the first person. Like Olivia's story was, this story also is going to be interrupted from time to time by the party guests. I'm going to ignore those interruptions. Uh, of course, you know we may talk about them as we pause at our own pace, but I'm going to ignore them here in order to just tell Julius's story. So, all right, Julius's story takes place right after he's finished college. Uh, he's gone to pharmacy school somewhere. But then after this, he, he can't find any work. And he explains that this is actually pretty typical if you don't have a family pharmacy that you're going to take over, because most pharmacies only require one person to run them. And so there aren't really jobs for a, a second pharmacist. This is something really that you do not as a job, but something that you do as a small business owner. And so he ends up spending the summer after college just traveling around his local area, just looking for any pharmacy that's hiring. But he doesn't find anything, and he decides then to try further afield, and he just takes trains all over looking for work. And the story he's about to tell takes place somewhere where he did find some work, and in fact, the story is about the strange circumstances surrounding that work. So he takes the train south, though he does not want to say where he wound up because everybody in Cashinsville already has the wrong idea about this place. I'm very interested in this, right? This feels like maybe a joke that Wolf has included for, I don't know, himself, uh, maybe also a few other specific people. It might just be Damon Knight. Uh, I don't know. But I think we should take this up in the discussion and also then be on the lookout for clues as to where this story takes place. And we do actually get some clues right away. Julius is not going to say where this is, but he does want to be clear that there were palm trees. Uh, there are also magnolias down there. And... 
these are growing alongside the, the the streets and also the house that he stayed at had a lemon tree and an orange tree in the front yard. And of course, it was hot. Uh, the ground is sandy. The houses are made of wood or stucco. They're not made of brick. It's also not a big city. It's only got one drugstore. I do think that we'll get some more clues than this. But Brandon, I, I guess I just want to know, what is your first impulse here about where this is? I don't know, Glenn. How many times do I have to tell you that I'm bad at geography and nature? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I don't know. You keep on putting me to, to these tests and I, I fail them every time. But <laughs> I don't know. Based on these clues, I, I, I'd guess it's like Alabama or Georgia or something like that. Maybe Florida. Like he says, he doesn't go all the way east, which I think he means the mid-Atlantic states. And he doesn't go west. Uh, and maybe he doesn't go all the way south. So Florida might be a, a, a mess cue there. So maybe Alabama or Georgia, one of those states. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Glenn? Right. This this description that he gives us where he says, I didn't go all the way out west and I didn't go east. You know, to my mind, Florida is east. Florida is the east coast. You know, my right, mind as, right, a, right, right. as yeah. a Midwesterner. But I don't know that that is how most people <laughs> think of Florida. And I don't know that that's how people thought of Florida in either the 70s or the, the 20s, right, when this story is taking place. So that might be a, it might be a mistake to rule that out on those lines. But I guess really what I thought was going on here is I, I think it's Houston. Like my sense is that this is Houston. He's describing you know, the place where he grew up, uh, a place that here as Wolf is writing this in the 70s has changed a lot, which is something he's talked about in many interviews. He often would say, I grew up in Houston when it was still a Southern city, as opposed to this just big uh, generic American metropolis that that it is today, thanks to the the oil industry and, and other things. Um, so yeah, I had a sense that this is some kind of joke about Houston, right? The idea that, you know, people already have sort of a bad idea about this place, right? And it's his hometown. Yeah, it seemed like an in-joke to me. That's fair. I like that. I'll take it. I mean, sure. Why not? I I was never going to be right anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but I did then, of course, end up looking at a lot of photographs of Houston from uh, the 1920s, or at least from before the Second World War, uh, trying to see if, uh, you know, the, the descriptions here that he gives us match up. And it didn't really seem right to me. But uh, but who knows? <laughs> Perhaps we will get some more information later. Yeah, I, I mean, I have one more thing to say about this section here. And it's th- that Smart mentions that his parents are now dead. I want to point this out because maybe it means something or will mean something. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just a character moment. But the way that Smart describes his parents being dead is that they've gone on to their reward. And so this really jumps out to me as a bit of at least culturally Christian language. And so Smart is at least culturally Christian in a way that is more explicit than we've seen in the rest of the cast of this novel so far. And I think, you know, we're going to bring that up at least one more time here. So yeah, maybe Julius Smart is Jesus. If uh, I don't know if we're going with the ugly Jesus hypothesis as a way of to <laughs> interpret his character. Well, later on, we're actually going to be told that he grew up on a farm as well. And so something that we are seeing in this story is that religion is for farmers and not for the people who live in town. And it really might be that religion is for poor people and and middle-class people, but it's not for the elite. All right. Well, let's get back to to Julius's story here. There's still a lot to cover in this episode, and then, of course, still a ton to cover in this chapter. So Julius gets off the train. It's very early in the morning. It's uh, well before shops would normally be open. And so his plan is to get some breakfast while he waits. 
But it turns out the drugstore actually is open, though definitely outside of the the regular hours posted on the, the door. And so he just goes directly there. And we get a great description of this pharmacy shop itself in the way that Wolf has been paying really just a lot of attention to the material culture of early 20th century America all throughout this book. And so uh, what's described for us here is that it's, it's got a, a very high ceiling with a six-bladed electric fan. Uh, the lights are all electric too, but they've been converted from gas lights. And I love the, the touch of these details that Wolf provides in this book, right? Details that you know other writers just would not would not give us. And I think it's just beautiful. Uh, and we also get a really awesome description of the pharmacist, whose name is Mr. Tilly. Mr. Tilly is very tall. He's one of the tallest men, in fact, that Julius has ever seen. But he stands like he doesn't have a chest, and so he doesn't actually seem tall at first. But when he reaches up to get something above his head, it's like watching a tree grow. Also, his hair is black, but he's balding. And this is a detail, of course, that tells us about his age, which is going to matter to the story. And Julius asks him about a job, but that is actually interrupted by the arrival of a customer. Uh, a customer that Julius surmises is, in fact, the reason the shop is open outside of regular hours in the first place. And this customer is a woman with no arms. Uh, her hands grow directly out of her shoulder sockets. Tilly knows her, and he's got a package all ready to go for her. And then she leaves and gets into a car that's been idling outside, a car that's being driven by uh, an exceptionally muscular man. Uh, we're going to keep these people in mind as we go. They're going to come back into the story. But right now, we return to Mr. Tilly. So Mr. Tilly invites Julius to join him at the Bluebird Cafe for breakfast, where uh, things are going to get a little bit weird. Well, first, Mr. Tilly just on the spot here, agrees to hire Julius and, and hire him for a lot of money, uh, nearly twice what Julius had hoped to get. And he also invites Julius to live with him. It turns out that Tilly is a widower. Uh, his wife died a number of years ago. And so he's got a spare room and he could also just do with uh, a, a bit of housekeeping. And so just to sum all of this up, uh, Tilly's going to hire Julius for nearly double what is usual. Then he's also going to put him up for free, though that's in exchange for Julius doing like the household chores. And this seems like maybe it's too much, like too good to be true. It seems that way to mean, it, it seems that to me, I mean, right? does not actually necessarily seem that way to Julius, although it's going to turn out that maybe it is too good to be true. But we're not there yet, right? So at this point, we get breakfast. Julius orders first, then Tilly. But when the food comes, Tilly places a long bony hand on Julius's to stop him from eating. And then he asks him to just completely switch meals. And he says that he's got a weird digestive condition and that sometimes he finds himself suddenly repulsed by food or specific food, really. And that has happened here, right? Everything he ordered now just suddenly repulses him. But at the same time, Julius's breakfast looks really appetizing. And so he wants to switch. And look, Julius, of course, he agrees to this. He's got to, right? He's you know about to make a living off of working for this person and living with him. So yeah, he agrees to this. And then Tilly devours this breakfast. That is to say, everything except for one item. And Julius pauses here to ask the audience what it is they think that Tilly didn't eat. And it's going to turn out to be you know something of a riddle, really. Yeah, this story is actually full of riddles and intrigue <laughs> and mystery. Uh, and, you know, Smart is just dropping these little crumbs of inconceivability and sort of goading his audience into participating in the story that he's telling. And 
boy, this is just an awesome technique that I that I'm going to steal someday. You know, at first, everyone wonders how the woman without arms smoked a cigarette. Then they wonder how she lit a cigarette. And each answer leads to another question. And each deduction that Smart leads his audience to make is also not a definitive answer. Like, how did the woman light her cigarette? Well, there's a man in the car, of course. Th- that's not an answer. That's just describing there's another person there. <laughs> you know, why did the man make the woman go to the store rather than go in the store himself? And really, the question here, the implied question here is, why isn't she more embarrassed about her condition? Well, we'll get an answer for that later, too. You know, should we take Tilly at his word that he's repulsed by food when he's shown to be ravenous at the same time? And man, it's just it's just brilliant. It's just brilliantly told story. And these interjections that we get, you know, I just went through a bunch of these questions that were asked. Tell us a little bit about the characters at the party, too. Eleanor Bold is incredulous when she hears about this woman. Peacock, here he speaks. He's really concerned about the logistics, about like how you live with hands but no arms. Olivia is the one who's really concerned about protecting this woman's sense of dignity and propriety. And later on, when the group at the party, you know, who it turns out is just Olivia Suitors and Eleanor Bold, when they talk about the breakfast mystery, McAfee thinks Tilly didn't drink milk because lactose intolerance is really common. Olivia plays some sort of like Holmesian game using the law of averages to make a deduction. (laughs) Blaine thinks that Smart is trying to surprise everyone. So he's like reading the storyteller, not the clues in the game. And each of these guesses kind of reveal what people think about Smart, too. McAfee maybe doesn't think much about what Smart is trying to do here. So he's like, the guy just couldn't drink milk. Blaine thinks that Smart might be putting on a bit of a show. Olivia thinks that Smart is, well, he's really smart and she has to rise to his level. Also, Wolf or Weir here is being tricky too. If you haven't read ahead, I won't give away the answer to the breakfast mystery here. But I will say, if you want to figure it out, there is only one dish not repeated in this section, this interjection uh, that was mentioned in the order. And this is sleight of handwriting at its best. I honestly didn't even notice it my first time around. And I will tell you my first time around, I went back and tried to solve this mystery. So this is just a brilliant technique that Wolf is using. And it's a very involving piece of writing as well. Right. Last time I made a joke about Bjorn, right? A little joke about The Hobbit, because that's a thing that I do. And the, the idea there in, you know, in that chapter in The Hobbit is that uh, the way to get Bjorn to you know let you stay at his house and also to maybe not eat you is to get him really interested in your story. And the way to get him really interested in your story is to have it constantly be interrupted so that you become impatient to get back to the story. That is the technique that Wolf is using here. I mean, he's doing more than just that, but every time there's one of these interjections, I'm, I want to skip it because I just want to carry on with the story. And that is really a great way to suck at least me in. I don't know. That might not work for, for everybody, but it really works on, on me. I think it's an absolutely brilliant technique just for that, right? Just for drawing the audience in, in addition to everything else it's doing. And one of the things that it's doing here that I think is really awesome, you mentioned this, Brandon, is the contrast between the way that Olivia is trying to solve 
this this riddle and the way that Stuart Blaine is trying to solve this riddle. And, and Stuart Blaine is actually being a little shrewder here than I think that we've given him credit for in the past, where we see that, you know, you said Olivia is trying to do a bit of a Sherlock Holmes thing, which I think is, is true, right? But she is treating this story like it's real, like it's it's in the world. And so she's trying to figure out, she's trying to solve this riddle based on things that she knows about the world that we all live in. But Blaine is here thinking, this is this is a story. So the solution to the riddle is not about the world. It's about the rules of storytelling. And what a great contrast that is. And also, these are you know two totally different modes of reading a story, but they're two modes of reading a story that I think is really profitable to apply to a wolf story, to a Gene Wolf story in particular, right? To apply each of these ways of thinking about the story and see what differences come up when you do that. So it's almost like here, Wolf is just subtly telling us how to read this book. I mean, that, and that's what great literature does. Like every book that people think is a great book, whether you agree with them or not, the one thing all great literature has in common is that it teaches you how to read it while you're reading it. And I think. You know, if we're using that sole criteria to determine whether or not a text is great literature, this book passes that test with with flying colors. Let me just say one more thing about Julius's job pitch to to Mr. Tilly. You know, it's like pitch to get hired by Tilly. He thinks it's really important to communicate to Tilly that he's a churchgoer in order then to convince Tilly that he's an honest man and that he's got integrity. But Smart is also saying this to his audience as well. He's also saying, this is who I am. You know, like it's not, I'm not just saying this to Tilly. I'm also making sure you know this about me as I'm telling this story. And uh, that's also a great, great storytelling device as well. Yeah. And also great, you know, just if you're at a party, I guess, right? And like with people you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. This is a great way to say like, hi, I'm Julia Smart. Let me tell you all the important things about me and also tell a hell of a yarn as well. Yeah, though, interestingly, one of the things that uh, matters here, one of the things that comes up is that because of his religion, Julius is a teetotaler. He does not drink. That must have already come up at the party, right? Because everyone else is consuming alcohol at this party. Not here. It's a little bit later on. We're told explicitly that Weir remembers that Julius Smart had tea. He had a saucer, a cup and saucer of tea on his knee at, at this point. So he's already declined some alcohol, but he here brings it up again, right? So for his audience to hear. So it, it seems like this is something that really, really matters to him, uh, which is interesting, as, as you've pointed out already. And in fact, this is going to continue to to come up, but uh, let's uh, let's carry on here. So before we keep going, I'll just sum up where we are, right? So Julius arrived in this town by train very early in the morning. He has now been hired at the local pharmacy that was also open very early in order to accommodate a woman with no arms. And now he's had breakfast with the pharmacist who has offered him a job that seems too good to be true. And now at this point, Tilly leaves Julius in charge of the shop with directions to his house so that he can move in after the shop closes at 8 p.m. And this has all just been like, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour or something like that, right? And this section of the story is really going to be about Tilly's house. But the setup for what turns out to be a strange introduction to the house, uh, the setup for this is that Tilly comes back to the pharmacy around dinner time and, and takes over from Julius. And this is so that he can send Julius to go get groceries for the two of them to have dinner at the house. 
the idea is that Tilly will close up shop and then he's going to meet Julius at the house. But Julius gets there first. And so he's just kind of standing around on the sidewalk waiting. This, of course, is a really good narrative excuse for a description of the house. And uh, this will matter for, for my interest, of course, in where the story is set. But Julius tells us that Wherever this is, the houses are built thin. They're they're long rectangles rather than squares. And the reason for this is so that the house can function as a breezeway, essentially, in order to deal with this very hot summer climate. And Tilly's house was rectangular running back from the sidewalk, though some of the houses in this town were long and, 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 and parallel to the street. Now, it's a two-story house, and as Julius is standing out front waiting for Tilly, he sees a curtain move in the second-story front window, and it moves just as if someone were standing in front of the window and, you know, pushing the curtains to one side in order to look out, except there wasn't any face there. And at this point in the story, we get an interjection that I do think is, is worth mentioning because it's narratively important, and this is Stuart Blaine asking up front explicitly if this is a ghost story. And Julia says that he guesses it is. Yeah, I mean, it's becoming more and more convincing that Stuart Blaine could have actually been an English professor, you know, to <laughs> us. Uh, you know, he went the bank route, but maybe he is really passionate about uh, storytelling and the rules of storytelling and how stories are structured. I mean, that's not really what English professors do, strictly speaking. It's maybe a part of it. But yeah, it's it's becoming convincing that maybe Stuart Blaine took some English classes and this is uh, maybe a genuine passion of his, you know. Here we also get uh, an interjection from Aunt Vi or or V, who, you know, after Stuart Blaine asks Smart if this is a ghost story, and hey, maybe that's a good overall question for this novel, by the way. <laughs> Vi says that her sister-in-law really ought to be here because she's a connoisseur of ghost stories. Like, she knows all about poltergeists and revenants and that sort of thing. She knows all the kinds of ghost stories. And in the same moment as Vi is speaking... Dennis shaking his head, and, and and Vi thinks that this is because maybe Dennis doesn't think that this is actually a good setup for a ghost story, that it's like really obvious that a dog or something moved the curtain in the house and not a ghost. You know, but us as readers, like maybe Dennis is shaking his head for another reason. Like his mom is mentioned here, and he knows why his mom isn't at the party, and he just maybe doesn't want to hear about his mom in this moment. And the reason that his mom is not at this party or or Really, the reason that Weir is not at his own house with his parents and, and already tucked in, in bed while Olivia's down the street hosting this birthday party, or actually, presumably, this birthday party would be at McAfee's place uh, because uh, they wouldn't have to be accommodating a, a nine-year-old. You know, the reason for that is because of a, a tragic death, and a tragic death is generally the impetus for most ghost stories. So there's a bit of overlap there. And I, I don't think that nine-year-old Weir is, is thinking along those lines, but it's something that we, the reader, can be thinking about for sure. And so there's a sense in which you know this story, the book that we're reading, has perhaps uh, some of the, the impetus or, or, or some of the, the, the stock catalysts of a ghost story itself. But at any rate, now that we have been primed to be on the lookout for a ghost, at least in this story that Julia Smart is telling, Wolf is just going to take all of that away and give us something else entirely, which is, you know, a classic technique for telling a story that actually is a ghost story. So when Tilly arrives and lets Julius in, Julius sets out to cook dinner. But he discovers that the house has been very poorly kept. It's extremely dirty. The kitchen in particular is just 
Well, it's, it's gross. That's what it is. It's got plates of moldy food just sitting around. Uh, so there's some cleaning here that needs to happen first. And we get the impression, I think, of Julius Smart as uh, a fastidious person, right? We've already at this point got like two stories of him cleaning up the mess of an old pharmacist, right, at this point. And this work, of course, doing this in the kitchen, this is how he's getting a free room in the house. And so he launches into it while he's also then trying to prepare dinner. And so they eat dinner together. Uh, There are also then oranges for dessert. And at this point, Tilly sends Julius upstairs to get a syringe from his bedroom, from, from Tilly's bedroom, that is. This is the same room with the mysterious curtain. And so Julius cannot resist looking around a bit. And it is Tilly's bedroom, but it has also been fitted out as a pharmaceutical lab. So maybe it's a ghost story, but also maybe it's going to turn out to be a mad scientist story. But at any rate, when Julius returns with the syringe, Tilly uses it to inject the orange with water. Why he does that? Totally unclear. But it lets him talk about how to look for clues that food has been tampered with. And after this, finally, <laughs> we're going to get the next beat in the ghost story business. And, and, and that's what we'll end this episode on, actually. Uh, it's bedtime now, and we get a glimpse of what Tilly's life used to be like. Uh, we already know that his wife died a few years ago, but it turns out that they had a son named Rodney who also died and, and, and clearly died as a, a, a child while still living with them. Julius is not going to stay in the room that had been Rodney's. Uh, Tilly has gotten rid of most of Rodney's furniture, and now he uses this room as uh, storage for the the shop. And so Julius is going to stay in the room that had been the cooks back when Tilly had a family and you know they had a live-in cook, apparently, a live-in housekeeper of some sort. And with this information, Julius now goes to bed, and he goes to bed here as a full moon comes up that he can see out his window. So, you know, pretty pretty ominous setting for something that might turn out to be a ghost story. And then he has a dream that he was lying in bed and a terrible, horrible face was hovering within inches of his own. He wakes up with a start and looks around to see if anyone is in the room. And as he sits up, he places his hand on a damp spot on the sheet, a damp spot with no obvious cause or origin. And this is where Wolf breaks the section. And so it is also where we are going to leave things today, right in the middle of this story. Yeah. Uh, Smart definitely didn't pee himself after seeing a horrifying ghostly <laughs> visage floating above his head. Ghost water. It's a real thing. I, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you know, we, we also in this section get another clue as to the location of this place where Smart lived and, and worked for a little while. And it's this. People wore black ribbon neckties. And I immediately thought of Colonel Sanders here, uh, but it turns out palm trees don't grow in uh, Kentucky, or at least they don't grow well. So, you know, smart's not in Kentucky. People wear ribbon ties, I guess, <laughs> in other places in the South in the 1920s. I want to take a moment to address Tilly's relationship with food here. It's clear that he's paranoid about food for some reason. He's given a lot of thought to how easily it is to tamper with food, how poison can live just beneath the surface of an orange. I mean, his kitchen is also filthy. And my God, one thing I've learned about, you know, living on my own or in a house or with a family or anything is that uh, you should clean the kitchen at least once a day if you're able to. (laughs) And the the smell of, of rotten food and mold and the idea of plates sticking together 
that's its own sort of mundane horror. And and maybe another example of that, you know, descriptive reporter-like prose that Wolf uses in some cases to give us the sense that, yes, this is disgusting, but I'm writing about it like it's just the case. Like, this is, this is aberrant. Kitchens should not be like this. And for Tilly to have this food aversion, but then also not to be, uh, you said fastidious, which I think is a great word, in his own kitchen is is its own kind of contrast, its own, well, its own kind of horror. But this moment with the orange, we also learn really sticks with Julius. And he says at this point in the narrative that he's got some ideas about oranges that will make people sit up and take notice. So, I mean, smart is Naranj the Marid, and he's the fire suitor who gins gold from the earth. And this must all mean something. Uh, maybe also smart is the eponymous alchemist of the chapter title, <laughs> though that may be Tilly, whose pharmaceutical lab is in the house is, Glenn, as we covered in another story, My Pathology is a kind of classic image of alchemy, you know, and a, a classic workroom for those who practice the great work in secret. Right. And just to be fair to, to Tilly about his kitchen, I mean, if you are busy being uh, an alchemist or a mad scientist, you, you just, you're just not doing your own dishes. Like that's, you're just not, you're just not. Presumably, <laughs> you know, somewhere along the line, you're going to make some like hybrid human animal creatures to do those things for you. And maybe that's what Tilly's working on and he just hasn't perfected it yet. So the kitchen just languishes in squalor for a little while. Yeah. I've, I've been rewatching sliders slowly in the <laughs> evening as, uh, you know, my wife goes to bed before I do. And, you know, there's a scene where, you know, the Dr. Arturo or whatever his name is, the professor has to reinvent penicillin and uses food waste to do that. So, hey, maybe maybe uh, Tilly's got something like that in mind as well. I mean, penicillin was just invented, I think, or found in what, 1917, 1918, sometime around that time, I think in some caves. And, you know, maybe Tilly wants to experiment with with more mold. Who knows? The last thing I want to say about this section is the way that Smart, in telling this story, and this goes back again to kind of what I've been harping on a little bit, jams together images of the girl with no arms and images that relate to the ghost story, the horror images. Now, remember, Smart himself has a deformity. Tilly is described as a strange-looking man. But Smart is using these images of the girl with no arms to, to kind of heighten the horror of the story, to add to the haunted nature of the story. And as I said, we, we've seen Weir interpret Smart's choices in running the pharmacy shop in town as a sort of, you know, yearning or moving towards the mean or the norm, or at least that's how I'm reading it. So there's this sense then that something aberrant might automatically be a source of harder or something that medically we need to hide or something like that. And, you know, maybe there's a lesson here that that might not necessarily be the case as Smart is telling the story. Maybe he's leading us down a trail that he's going to redeem some of these images later on. Well, I think what you're really driving at there, Brandon, is that this basically feels exactly like Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean, totally. <laughs> At this point, it does. <laughs> right. At this point, we don't know why this story is populated by people who all have strange appearances, right? It's like that guy over there is just way too muscular. Uh, this person has no arms, just has hands attached to her shoulder sockets. Uh, this guy over here, Mr. Tilly, the, you know, the pharmacist, right? The druggist, he's just 
too tall. Also, he's really weird, right? But we don't know why these characters in this story have these attributes, where it's all going. It is actually all going somewhere, but we don't know why at this point. And really all that we're getting here, all of this so far and expertly done is establishing a mood for this story, right? It's giving us a, a, a sense of this unnamed town as a really, really weird place that this stranger from somewhere else has walked into today and is being thrust into the middle of the strangeness. And yeah, when the story continues, we're going to get some some plot. We're going to see Wolf take these parts and, and shake them up a little bit and have something happen. So the story is about something. But right now, this is just an expertly crafted, unsettling, weird setting. Yeah, and, and we're also really unsure if whether a pre-X Files David Duchovny is going to show up either. You know, like that <laughs> that might happen right at the chapter five, right at the end of chapter five. Oh, man. It, yeah, is this story going to turn out to be uh, X Files versus Twin Peaks or X Files and <laughs> Twin Peaks? Unclear, but it must be one of those. <laughs> well, now that we're thinking of what this story might be, if it were, I don't know, otherwise portrayed by David Lynch or Chris Carter or something like that, I think it's time for us to head out. Uh, so that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brendan Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. And yeah, we spent all of chapter two talking about how it was clearly the inspiration for the Gilmore Girls. So uh, yeah, we're, we're turning our sights elsewhere. But I think that something that we've learned from doing this show is that Gene Wolfe is the uh, uh, the impetus and inspiration for all pop culture subsequent to him, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take our holiday break now. So we'll be back on February 1st to cover the next installment in this chapter and in Julia Smart's story. That's going to be pages 169 to 180 in the Orb 2012 edition, which has us reading up through the line that ends with a boxing for those of you reading along in other editions. And though we're going to be gone for a little while, this holiday break is an awesome time to check out our other shows. If you aren't already listening to all of those, it's also a great time to join us on Patreon if you're not already with us there. If you're not and you join us, you're just in time for our pair of Christmas episodes, but there's also a massive, massive back catalog of nearly 100 episodes at this point, and your financial support really helps keep the show going, which we really, really appreciate. And so, until next time, until next year, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell. 